0: Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. They shall glean thoroughly as a vine the remnant of Israel, like a great gatherer pass your hand again over its branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised, they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it upon the children in the street, and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Today's New Testament reading is from the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a sea. For that, okay. For you are all children of light, children of the day, Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. You ready to talk about the day of the Lord? All right. Hope you're excited. The day of the Lord I hope uh, I hope you come I know we all have lots of reasons to come to church I hope one of them is you come hoping to hear and receive something unexpected. you don't just come wanting your consciences massaged and maybe today is precisely that sort of day where you will hear something unexpected. I can say it brings me great comfort to know that we walk through books of the Bible and that this is the passage that we have in the book that we are walking through. And so my job is simply to to the text. And it's also a, a text that gives voice to something that is all throughout scripture. So this is not something that is obscure, hidden away, tucked away in some little parts of scripture. This is all over the Bible. And so it gives me great, great comfort and confidence uh, to be able to talk about the day of the Lord in a way that is quite founded in scripture. So I hope that uh, you are comforted, but also surprised. I do know that we need to cut through a lot of stereotypes, a lot of misconceptions about what this means, what does the day of the Lord mean, is it what we hear about in all sorts of fanciful media ways or not. So let's pray and ask God to speak. God, we do ask that you would, as you have promised, uh, make your word effectual to us, We ask that your spirit would meet us. We praise you that you have set this day apart to worship you, this day on which Jesus was raised, and we pray that we would become more like Jesus as we await his return. May you comfort those who are broken. May you challenge those who are hard-hearted, and may you be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the context of the letter, we are moving from a section where he was really clarifying some concerns that they had. They didn't understand how the resurrection of Jesus worked in relation to those they know who have died. That was last week in last chapter. And Paul just tried to clarify and said, no, it's, it's okay if people have already died. Jesus is going to raise them just as he was raised. And we will all be with Jesus this section is a little bit different he seems to think and say that they already have a pretty good understanding of what the day of the Lord is Uh, that this is something that they know well and he's just repeating and reminding them what he's probably already taught them when he was there Um, and so he doesn't have to clarify necessarily theologically what's happening but I do think that there that's not necessarily the case for us uh, we, need, we need clarification. What does this mean, the day of the Lord? And, and I want to try to convince you of first that we can actually look forward to the day of the Lord. That may sound strange, but I think it is very biblical and also very true. In order to, to try and convince you of that first, though, let's clarify what, what does Paul mean and what does Scripture mean when he writes the day of Of the Lord? Well, in the passage, it's very clear that there's going to be destruction, there's going to be judgment, there's going to be wrath. There is, we know that there is going to be cosmic restoration to God and to one another. In other parts of Scripture, Revelation especially, it gives us all sorts of clarity about the new heavens and the new earth, where God is going to come by sight. So we are going to get to be with Jesus by sight, not just by faith. There is some kind of cosmic restoration, reconciliation. And in order for there to be this ultimate reconciliation, God has to deal with sin. He has to deal with that which destroys us. That which we destroy one another, that which, above all else, we have rebelled against God with. They seem to have already known this, but he's saying to those who are not in Christ, it will come like a thief, it will come surprising, and it will come in a way that no one can escape. It's going to be total. It's going to be global. It's going to be revealing on earth what is already true in heaven. God is already the king of kings and lord of lords. We just don't see it by sight. But if you think about it, I think if we're honest, and if we think about perfect justice the wiping away of every tear and the dealing of every sin, we should want that, right? We may just not be sure of the implications, especially of those outside of Christ. We obviously would want to worry. We would want them to come and know Jesus. But when God is dealing with sin, There's a sense in which for a Christian, sin is no longer our identity. If you are in Christ, sin has been separated out. So you still struggle with it, but it's no longer who you are. But if someone is so wrapped up in their sin, it's almost as if there's no separation. So to deal with sin is to destroy the whole person. There's a... Uh, professor, actually, here at the Div School, and he, Miroslav Wolf, and he wrote this amazing book called "Exclusion and Embrace," and he is from Croatia, grew up in Croatia, and so grew up in the midst of unspeakable violence, and unspeakable torture, and war, and pillaging of villages, and raping of women, and. Part of his book is basically trying to come to terms with that. How do you believe in a gospel that says love your enemies in that world? And he writes this. One could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? On the contrary, in a world of violence it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. And he goes on to describe, it's likely that if we believe in a God who is not just, and who is not going to punish, it's very likely that maybe we haven't experienced real evil. Maybe our lives or our culture is so comfortable or so so dismissive of real evil that we don't think there needs to be any justice. Maybe that's true for you. I want to try to also dispel some other uh, stereotypes or or stumbling blocks to this passage before before we move on because we're still trying to get us to think what would it look like to look forward to the day of the Lord. I mentioned that this is all over scripture. That is very true. Jesus talked about the day of the Lord. He talked about judgment and justice all the time. And so there's this misconception that Jesus is this friendly hippie sort of guy who is, you know, make love not war type of deal, um, and that Paul or the early church or other Christians, they're the ones. <clears throat> excuse me, who introduced all of this judgment? That's really just not true. If you, it's pretty easy to just read the Gospels and see what Jesus said. We wouldn't want to pick. And choose which parts of Jesus we're going to listen to or not. He talks about the places of weeping and gnashing of teeth and terrible destruction. He does it because it's also all over the Old Testament. And he very often is simply quoting or referencing or in line with the Old Testament. And the day of the Lord seems to be a phrase that goes all the way back to Amos. Which was the earliest in time of our I think the earliest or about the earliest in time of our prophets. And he's talking about the day of the Lord as if everyone already knows what he means. In Amos 5, he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And he goes on and just describes terrible judgment upon Israel. And very often, it's important to realize the prophets are explaining or, or, or preaching judgment against Israel. Which is another misconception, I think, especially with the Old Testament. As if God is only angry at those people out there. We don't believe, Israel never could never believe in a God that's just, oh, he's going to be nice to us, but he's going to judge those other people as if it's some kind of like racial prejudice. We're just taking care of our own tribe or race. It's really not that at all because what happens in the Old Testament is that he ends up judging Israel as much as he judged the other nations. It's important, though, to realize that that same Amos 5 passage goes on and it says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's a passage that Martin Luther King would quote often. But we can't want that without dealing with sin. Also, I just want to try to help clarify that it's not God. We think of wrath and we think of of out-of-control vengeance. That's not the picture either. Try to picture perfect justice, meaning it's meted out proportionately. And if we have a problem with that, maybe we just don't realize how Serious sin is, but it's not out of control. It's not wrathful as we often think of it. And then also, I, I sort of already mentioned it, but it is important for us to realize what, what blinders we ourselves have living in the West. This is a doctrine that in a lot of cultures throughout the world and throughout history would not have been controversial. It's a doctrine that many people would have said, of course. How can you believe in a God who doesn't do this? And so just realize that it makes, if it makes us uncomfortable, maybe it's just part of the, the water that we're drinking in our culture. So if we can try to look forward to this day where sin is dealt with, where judgment actually comes rightly and proportionately, Paul. Paul goes, uh, he, he wants to encourage them to say, you do not have to be surprised by the day of the Lord, depending on who you are. Depending on who you are. To those in darkness, as he describes it, it will come as a thief. And I had us read Jeremiah 6, because he's probably referencing this or other similar ideas in the Old Testament. In our passage, Paul writes, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. Similar to what Jeremiah said, if you heard it. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. What do they mean by that? Worldly comforts, ...deceive us. I think that's part of what they mean. Worldly blessings... ...can deceive us. They apparently were saying... ...peace, peace, look, everything is okay. But they were deceived. This also is very common... ...throughout scripture. Often the false prophets are the ones proclaiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. When they are not right with God. And at times, we are told God hands them over to their sinful desires as a sort of punishment itself. And you see it in the New Testament also in Romans 1 and in Revelation. There's a sense in which if we get what we want... That may be an aspect of God's curse, an aspect of God's actual punishment, not necessarily his blessing. It's a way, sometimes our, our worldly comforts or pursuits, it's almost like the way a vaccine is supposed to work. You know how a vaccine, if it, if it works, it tricks your body into thinking you have the disease, so that your body will then create the antibodies to fight it, or something like that. So I'm told. But I think we need to see worldly comforts in the same way. They trick us to make it think like everything is okay, to make it think like we're okay with one another and we're okay with God but it's not always the case. Now, for the children among us, this is a very real dilemma when you ask for a toy. I'm speaking as a parent. It's a very real dilemma when you ask for a toy because what do we want as parents? Let me tell you, your parents want you to know that they love you, you can trust them, They are for you, okay? But we also do not want to inoculate you to your need. We don't want you to ever, we don't want you to be the spoiled child who never faces his need. So what do we do? It's very hard. I don't know. Sorry, parents. (laughs) If we are always just distracted by what we can get, then we're not facing our real need. Right? So if we can look through the deception of our worldly comforts, if we are, in fact, sons and daughters of the light or of the day, then we don't have to be surprised by the day of the Lord. Now think about this. Maybe this is one of the, another one of those misconceptions that we're, everyone's always going to be surprised. He says very clearly, even though we do not know when, nobody knows when. If someone thinks that they know when, they are automatically wrong from the start because Jesus says you will not know when. So don't try to predict it. But even though we don't know when, you don't have to be surprised. Why? Because we're already children of that day. What do I mean by that? Well, in John 12, Jesus says, "...the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light." Part of what Jesus is saying here, and Paul is reaffirming it, realize who you are. You are sons and daughters of the day. This is already true of you. Meaning the day of the Lord has already begun at Jesus' crucifixion. This is really fundamental. I don't know how to understand the New Testament without this fundamental premise. That what Jesus did ...in taking on our sin... ...began the day of the Lord. Okay? Began dealing with... ...sin in that final... ...way. how, How do I know that? The most obvious example I think is in Acts 2... ...at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes... ...upon the apostles... ...and some disciples... ...and they are speaking in all sorts of different languages. People think they are drunk... And what does Peter do? Peter says, well, it's only nine in the morning. They're not drunk. Come on. But then he says, what you see here is the Holy Spirit coming because it's the day of the Lord. And he quotes Joel. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Peter says. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why does this matter that the day of the Lord has begun? It's because now we live in this time of overlap. If we are children of the light and children of the day, we live in the midst of darkness still. Because, and this is gracious of God, because he hasn't fully dealt with sin. Meaning there's still time to repent. When he comes, there will no longer be any time. No time to repent. Once there's no sin to repent of, right? When he returns, it's as if he's cashing in on what he has already bought. For those who are in Christ, we are told in this passage, you are destined for salvation. You are children of the light. You do not have to be surprised at the day of the Lord. The thief and the the pregnancy metaphors are for those who don't know Jesus. It's not meant to be that way, which is why he can say, be awake and be sober. And that's the the final point. Be awake and be sober for the day. Now, I want to try to think about what this means for us. Be awake and be sober For, for Paul in this passage is the opposite of sleep and drunkenness. To be asleep is to be unaware of the reality of who Christ is. To be drunk is to be unaware of the reality of what is going on. Metaphors for not living in light of the day. They're not aware of reality, not willing to face it. They maybe are afraid of it. So what does it mean to be awake and sober? To me, I think it's... it really hit me this week of how appropriate these commands are, these these encouragements are to be awake and sober, because it fits that we don't have to be surprised at the day of the Lord if we are already in Jesus. So part of what I think this means is we can have the courage to face reality. How many of us is this such a huge, huge hurdle? We ignore reality, we self-medicate, we hide it, we act like it's not there, we want to distract ourselves, and we have eight million ways to distract ourselves, don't we? What are the ways that you avoid reality? Now, often, and I know this is true for myself, I'm not, I don't consciously say, okay. Something terrible is going on in my life or my heart, so I'm going to avoid thinking about that and then watch a show. I don't, you don't, we, nobody works that way explicitly. But if you were to investigate your heart a little bit in the decisions and how you choose to spend your time, whether it's with food, alcohol, social media, Netflix, whatever it is, I would encourage you to ask are you simply avoiding? reality. Avoiding what is in front of you, avoiding the sin maybe that is in your own heart. None of those, of course, are inherently bad, but we should ask ourselves that. Famous uh, philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal said, all of humanity's problems, it's probably an overstatement, but All of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Dang. Sorry, kids. (laughs) You may not realize it, especially teenagers, but you are a part of a grand experiment with nobody in charge to see how distracted can we make you So that we can make as much money as possible, and we don't know what's going to happen. That's what's happening to all of us. What is the most profitable way to distract you all the time? We are the most distracted culture ever. Ever. And that should give us pause. But let's admit, it's hard to be honest. It's hard to face reality. For me, it took a long time growing up to realize I'm not gonna be in the MBA. My actions had consequences. I did not design my genes. You know, I didn't select my parents. All sorts of reasons why that was not gonna be true but I wonder what that is for you. Where do you need the courage to face reality? To be awake and be sober. To be sober meaning we can sit with the reality because we see how Jesus reigns. We see that if he is to return, we will be ready Why? Because why would it surprise us that the one we already trust as the king of kings is coming to claim what is his? And so we can seek to live as if Jesus is here now because he already reigns. He is here now by his spirit, by faith. We just don't see it. And so that's why there's this appropriateness, this fitting nature to you can be awake and be sober because what's going to surprise you? There's nothing left for God to do except cashing on what he's already bought. The final act of God will be taking hold fully by sight what's already his. That should give us joy and gladness and motivation to evangelize. But Paul also gives us some further detail on what it means to be awake and sober. He says, being clothed with faith, love, and hope. Clothed is a, one of those favorite metaphors of Paul. He, it's, it's this language of clothing. He uses it in several different places. I think part of the reason is it's as if being in Christ is as if you've been given new clothes and so you should start to fit in them. This is who you are now. You've been drafted onto this team. This is what it looks like to act that way. In Romans 13, where he's also talking about being awake and asleep and being in Christ, the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. And then he says, put on or clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Colossians 3 uses the same language, clothe yourself or put on then as God's chosen one holy and beloved compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. This is what it means to be clothed in Christ. But this type of clothing in our passage is not any type of clothing, it's spiritual armor. If you notice it's a breastplate Breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of hope. Why would those be the spiritual armor? It seems like faith, love, and hope, those don't sound like battle-type metaphors. Why would those be what we are called to put on as our, our spiritual armor? Well, think back to the way that we are deceived or deceive ourselves. If we think of it as if all around us and inside our own hearts there are deceivers trying to convince us of another alternative truth or universe faith trusting in Christ trusting his promises is going to be a really needs to be a very active way to fight that it links us to him in the face of all sorts of other competitors Love, love is this natural outflow of faith, what it looks like. There are a lot of reasons, though, to not love. There's going to be a lot of battles in your heart all the time to not want to love, so we need to arm ourselves with it. We need to see it as a battle to just live this out. And the same goes for hope. Hope is... The central concern in this letter, he's often talking about hope, eternal hope, the day of the Lord. And very obviously, it's we are hopeless apart from Christ. We can take it on as a helmet because without it, we grieve hopelessly from the last passage. We don't have a reason to trust that anything will ever get better. But in Christ, if we're armed with the hope, than we do. So hopefully we can actually look forward to the day, the day of the Lord when sin will be dealt with because we will get to meet our beloved. We will get to meet our maker, the one who we are trying to live in communion with now. That passage earlier that mentioned it would not be worthy of God to not wield the sword. If he didn't do that, he wouldn't be worthy of worship. I think that's true. If he wasn't mad at evil and injustice, then something would be wrong. I think that's true. But I also think that if God was just up there, if we believed in a God kind of like a watchmaker, who just started it all and sat back and was going to wait and then judge us all at the end, That wouldn't be a God worthy of worship either. If he didn't enter in and do something about our sin and our evil, what kind of God would that be? But he did. He did enter in. In verse 10 here it says, he died for us so that we may live with him. So that we may stand at the day of the Lord and rejoice. So that we may live in the light, in the day. It's a similar way that he ended last passage. The point is that we may be with him, be with Jesus. There are all sorts of ways that we deceive ourselves, find false comfort and all sorts of other things. But this, this is where it's at. You do not want to face the day of the Lord without Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do pray for this courage. We know, even if we know intellectually, we also know that your spirit has to apply it, has to open our hearts. God, we pray that you would clothe us with faith, love, and hope. We pray that we would be awake and sober. Lord, may you be exalted as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating. Share it with your friends or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.